Okay, um, before Josh comes up, I'm just going to read the, the passage. Uh, if you want to follow me in the Bible, unfortunately, I don't know the uh, page number. What, um, 1 Samuel 21, anyone got a page number? 293? Thank you, 293 at some. Um, apologies if I'm reading a slightly different version. I am reading NIV, but I got it off the Bible Hub. It's just easy for me to follow. Okay, so starting at 21. So David went to Nob to uh, Ahimelech, the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech, the priest. The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my, my, as for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy even on missions that are not holy. And how much, how much more so today? The priest gave the consecrated bread, since there was no bread except the bread of the presence that had been removed before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was going to Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, Do you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. The police replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, who you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Garth. But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Garth. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, Look at that man, he is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have brought this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Let's invite Josh up. And pray for you first. Yes, so, Lord, thank you that, uh, for the work that you've been doing um, with Josh this week as he prepares this passage. Lord, I just pray that um, as Josh speaks, it will be your words that we hear, Lord, um, that you'll be inspiring us by your Holy Spirit, Lord. And uh, as I prayed earlier, Lord, that this would just change our hearts, Lord, um, that we would leave here with a greater knowledge of who you are, Lord, and just love you uh, deeply and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good evening. I've been puzzling over something this week as I've been reading this passage and, and thinking about it. And the puzzle was that do you think that it could, could ever be right or commendable maybe to break one of God's commands? What do you think? Can you think of a situation where it might actually be acceptable to do something that would normally be wrong? 
Say the ninth commandment, which is you shall not give false testimony. You shall not lie. It's a very clear command in the Bible. Would there ever be a time when it was right to break one of God's commands? Sometimes my kids lie to us to get out of trouble for something. I'm sure many of us have done that before. And I have a little saying with them that you should always tell the truth, even if it means you'll get into trouble. It's a little mantra we have in our home, and generally I think that's, that's good advice. But it probably wouldn't have helped David in our passage tonight. I recall a book I read many years ago now by a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's a picture of him up here on the screen. He was a, a pastor in Germany back in the 1930s. And he was very outspoken on, on many things. He could see the Nazi party beginning to strengthen within Germany. He could see the things they were doing, the things they were pushing, and he spoke out against them. He was very outspoken against the work of Hitler and the euthanasia regimes that they started and eventually what they were doing to the Jewish people and others. He was arrested after some time for his views and for the things he was saying against the Nazi party. And he wrote from, the, from the, the prison cell he was, he wrote many books, he would write letters out to the church in Germany and around the world. And at times he would, he would encourage people actually to lie in order to cover up some of the things that were going on, to protect the Jews perhaps that they were hiding, to do civil acts of disobedience in order to protect and do some good for the country and for the world. He argued that at times it may be appropriate to break one of God's commands in order to prevent a greater evil. I'm not sure what you think about that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was eventually hanged for his part in a supposed plot to assassinate Hitler in 1945 in the Flossenburg concentration camp. He lost his life. But his legacy goes on and he's inspired many people since. And I was compelled by his argument. Maybe at times it might be right to break one of God's commands. If your life was at risk, if other lives were at risk, those you love, some greater good you are fighting for, to restrain evil in some way. We can talk more about that around our tables in a moment afterwards. What do you think? What if you're afraid? What if your very life is at risk and a lie would get you out of trouble? Or maybe those you loved would be protected because of something you said. Could it be excusable or even commendable then to deceive others in order to protect yourself? Fear can make us do and, and say desperate things. And so as I've been looking at this passage this week in, in David's life, maybe out of fear or out of some cunning plan to stay alive, he takes part in all sorts of deception and lies to the people around him. The Bible doesn't give any commentary on his actions in itself and whether they were right or wrong, but it does give us a bit of a quandary, and I've been thinking about it. What, what are the lessons we can learn from this little passage we've just read of David's life here as he flees from King Saul, as he goes into an enemy country and pretends to be mad, deceiving the people around him? What do you make of that? We're coming back to this passage in oh, this, this book of 1 Samuel. We've had a bit of a break from it over the summer. And tonight's the first again in a short series to go through chapter by chapter this great story of 1 Samuel. So let me just quickly recap where we are because we've jumped right into a, a great big narrative. So what's been happening is that David is a, a political refugee right here, right now. It's a new chapter in his life. He's on the run from the king of Israel, a man called Saul. And this king, he wants to kill David. 
The king feels threatened by David and all that he's done. But things weren't always bad between Saul and David. They were great friends. They were loyal subjects at one point to each other. He felt very warmly towards him. And, and the king, he, he rejoiced and, and was grateful for all that, that David did in his kingdom. David beat Goliath. Saul gave him his daughter in marriage. David would play music and the harp to soothe and to comfort King Saul, and he felt great love towards this young man. And there was great love there at the, minute, at the beginning, but even his own son, Saul's son, Jonathan, became deep friends with David. And so he was right involved in this, the heart of the kingly family in Israel. But then songs began to be sung about David, how he had killed so many more people than, than King Saul had. And Saul began to get jealous of this young warrior. The woman loved him, all the army, the military men, they loved David. He was such a brave and courageous warrior. And eventually, God rejected Saul as his king. He had disobeyed God and rejected him. And instead, God chose David. He would be the new king of Israel one day. And Saul resented that. He hated David for taking his place that he once had. And so he tried to kill this young man. And that's where we are today. Jonathan, in chapter 20, had said goodbye to his dear friend, And David begins a life on the run, a life fleeing for his life from one place to the next. He doesn't only leave the country that he loves, he he leaves his wife behind, his home, his best friend, Jonathan, the love and admiration of of a country. He leaves the land of Israel, the place that he felt such a great love for, the, the, the place where God had chosen to establish him as king. And so on his way out of the country, he's fleeing for his life. David first goes to visit Israel's priest. And that's where our passage starts. He goes to to a man called Ahimelech, this priest in Nob. Maybe he's going there for some reassurance, for some comfort, for some supplies. Our passage is is very short. It's just 15 verses. And not a lot really happens in the grand scheme of things. At first, this priest, he's quite wary of David. He's on his own. Why is he not with anybody else? This great military man... He's on his own. He's hungry. He's got no weapons with him. It's all odd. Doesn't seem quite right. And David tells some strange story about some secret mission that the king had sent him on. That was a lie. There was no such mission. However, this priest, Yahweh's minister in Israel, he is God's servant. He provides for David on his way out of the country. He blesses him. He seeks God's guidance for him in his life. He gives him a few loaves of bread. He gives him Goliath's mighty sword, this great giant that David once killed. By the way, Goliath was from the land of the Philistines in a place called Gath, which features later on in the story. And so David's lies to the priest, well, they they have a positive effect. And he realizes God's blessing on his life, his protection, and he's sent on his way. Does that make them right? Whatever you might think of David's actions here, it seems that God, through his priest, does bless and provide for David. As he was fleeing for his life, just imagine what sort of questions might be going through David's head. Where is God? Why am I fleeing from this country I love? How will I survive on my own? What will I eat? Where will I sleep? Is God really for me as he's shown me in the past with everything coming, is coming against me now, the king himself of the land wants to kill me, and I don't even deserve that. Why? These promises of the past that David remembers, the anointing by the prophet Samuel over his life, what of them? 
Where is God as he flees this country? And the short answer to all his questions, I think, is that God reassures him, yes, I am still for you. Through this priest, David is reassured. You are my chosen king, David. You are mine. Whatever your circumstances around you, however however hard they may seem, I am for you, I am with you. And through this, the small act of visiting the priest, the house of God, David is sent on his way with a blessing, it seems, from the priest. And I think that would have been a great comfort to David as he left. The last thing he did in the land of Israel, as he goes, he, he seeks God's face, his will, his presence in, in this tabernacle. And he goes with a blessing, with food in his belly, with a, with a sword on his waist. And he goes... See, when David found himself in, in trouble, he had to flee at a moment's notice. What did he do first? What, what could he have done? He could have gone home to his parents to find some home or shelter there. He could have formed a small army to try to fight back against Saul. He, he could have wallowed in self-pity, give up, maybe surrender. But he doesn't do any of those things. What does he do in his time of trial? He goes to God. It's the very first thing he does. He seeks the tabernacle, the very presence of God in Israel. And there, the priest intercedes on behalf of him. We're told that in the next chapter. You see, the Lord, he must always be the one we go to in our times of trouble, in our trials. How often do you go to your own places of, of refuge and strength and help? Do we, how often do we try solve things on our own when a hard time comes our way? We try to do things in, in my strength before we bring them to God. Maybe we're in trouble of some sort. Maybe it's even your own doing. And, and so you turn to your own resources. You, you turn to your family. You turn to your friends. You, know, you turn to Google to find some help that the world might offer instead. Instead, we're reminded in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says to cast all your anxiety onto him, for he cares for you. That's what the Bible teaches us to do. When we are faced with unsurmountable trials, you go to the Lord and you cast your worries, your burdens, your anxieties onto him. And I think David's life is an example of a life that is completely centered on God in every situation. It's entirely natural for him, it seems, to go to the Lord. It's his very first priority in every situation of life. Not just in his troubles, which is when most people eventually cry out to God. But it seems that this is his daily habit, to go to the Lord in prayer and meditation. Look at the Psalms, many of them written by David himself, and you see his heart coming through them, how he meditates on the Lord day and night, how he seeks God, how I long to be in your presence, in the, in the temple, in the sanctuary where you are. Through success, through failure, through victory, through trouble, every circumstance, David brings them all to the Lord. He knows that's his first priority, that is his anchor in his life. That's an example here as he begins this life on the run. What does he do? He goes to the Lord, to the very presence of God. So what about you? Where do you go? How, how far down your list is Jesus when it comes to some trouble in your life? Do you start each day in his presence, seeking to bring every need before him, or, the, or the, the thoughts, the worries, the plans of the day? When some life-changing decision is on the table, of course you bring those to God, but do you bring every decision before him? We had to look to the Lord in all things. I think that's what we can see in the life here of David as he goes on the run. 
Look to the Lord in all things. There's a strange little verse in our passage. As you move down to verse 7, there's a man that just makes a fleeting appearance and then he's gone again. You don't hear much more. There's a man called Doeg. Seems a bit out of place. We're just told that he was one of Saul's servants. And he's there in, in the tabernacle as, as David meets there. We need to remember that name because he's going to feature very strongly next week in the next passage. He turns out to be an informant for King Saul. And things don't end well for those who are in the tabernacle that day. The road's not always smooth in God's plans and the things that happen. David's actions here, however honorable or dishonorable they were, they have serious consequences for others. And we see that next week. But David now has bread in his belly. He's got Goliath's sword in his hand. He, he leaves the priest and he heads off. He flees the land of Israel and goes as a political migrant to the place called Gath, which is Philistine territory, Goliath's hometown. Why he went to the Philistines, to Israel's arch enemy, I have no idea. It seems it's a very strange decision to make. This is the people that he is overwhelmed in battle again and again. They are they are Israel's arch enemy. It's like a chicken trying to escape from a butcher and then running into KFC's kitchen to hide. Why would you do this? This is a very odd thing to do if you're fleeing from one enemy to go to another enemy instead. But maybe David's trying to test that old saying that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Maybe that was what's going on in his head as he flees to the Philistines. But as he gets there, he is also captured, it seems. And his life is in even more danger in this land of Gath. In verse 12, we're told that David was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. He wasn't just afraid, he was very much afraid. You see that word there? So David resorts to more deception. And this time he feigns insanity. Verse 13, he starts scratching at the doors, he starts dribbling down his bed, he looks mad. And it seems to work. By the end of the chapter, Achish wants him gone. Verse 1 of the next chapter says that David escapes and he goes to hide in some caves. And that's our passage. Two short little stories, unusual behavior, but yet we see God working here, protecting and blessing David and keeping him safe in the midst of all his trials. So where does that leave us as we try to apply God's word here to ourselves? What, what lessons does this story teach us? I think when the Israelites would read the story, that's what the book of the Bible here is, is for, was passed down from generation to generation, and, and families would read it with their children and tell the stories of old. Well, they would have known that the story of David was the story of their greatest king, the greatest king who ever ruled in Israel, and this was part of his story, and the people would have known that as they read these stories. He faced the most overwhelming situations, vast opposition, terrifying ordeals. His life was threatened again and again, and yet we see God providing for him, protecting him, even blessing him. And nothing seems to happen to him that is outside of God's will. All these things are his plan. The very first Psalm, Psalm 1, it reminds us that the Lord, he watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, well, that leads to destruction. And we see that played out here in this short story. The Lord is watching over his righteous servant, David, his chosen anointed king. And I think the Israelites, as they read these stories in 1 Samuel, they would have been encouraged 
that no matter how bleak your situation seems, God is in control. He is watching over the life of this young man. And we have the beauty of hindsight. We we can see how, how God remains faithful again and again to his children throughout all the ups and downs of life. We see that in our own lives. We see that in David's life. But when you're in the midst of trouble, how hard it is to remember that truth, that God is faithful in those things that we face. And so when we find ourselves in, in some ordeal, when we're unsure about how things will turn out, we must trust in the Lord's faithfulness. We don't get the benefit of hindsight until later. And so we need to remember these truths now. And I think the story of David here just shows us that in all situations, God is faithful to us. He very rarely works things out in the way we would like or we would hope and the timing that we would like him to do things in. But he is faithful. Nothing happens outside of his control or his will. And what I've enjoyed, enjoyed most these last few weeks in studying this chapter is that the Bible, it gives us a real glimpse into how David responded to the story. You see, he often wrote songs and psalms, and we have so many of them recorded in our Bibles. And he wrote two songs specifically about this chapter. And it tells us exactly what David was going through, how he responded to the situation that he found himself in. The two songs are Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. If you Maybe turn to it now in your Bibles if you haven't. Go to Psalm 34. You'll be able to see exactly what David is thinking in this passage. There's a little subtitle underneath um, the title of, of, the, of the song. And this is in the original Hebrew. This is sort of the inspired words here. That says, this is a psalm of David, Psalm 34. It's when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. So this happened when he was in Gath, pretended to be insane outside the gates. As he reflected on that time, this is what David wrote. And I'll just read a little bit from the start. It says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord. He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see. The Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And the psalm goes on. Can you see a glimpse of David's heart here in this song that he wrote? We face trials. We have fears and troubles. Verse 6 says, we call out to the Lord and he saves us. He provides, he delivers, he rescues, and we respond with praise. It starts with, I will extol you, Lord, at all times. Verse 8, I will taste and see that the Lord is good. This is how David responds to these terrifying ordeals in his life. Maybe as he was writing those verses, he was hungry. Maybe he didn't know where his next meal would come from, hiding in a cave. But he can say that the Lord is good. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He knows that whatever situation I'm going through, I can trust in him. He is all that I need. I said, do you see what David, I think, wants us to understand from these trials he faces? Down in verse 19, in Psalm 34, it says, The righteous person may have many troubles. But the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. 
I think David, he sensed the injustice of what he was facing. King Saul, he had no right to want to kill him. It was petty jealousy and anger at his own failings. David knew that. He knew he was righteous before God in that sense. And so David looks to the Lord to vindicate him. In his own way, in his own timing, he trusts in the Lord to deliver him at the right time. And this psalm, therefore, it also points us forward to the Lord Jesus, the truly righteous one. The Lord Jesus also suffered unjustly in the hands of his enemies. The Apostle John, he quotes the psalm when he's describing the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. It says that the Lord Jesus, none of his bones were broken as he hung on that cross, dying for us, carrying our sin, our shame, the things that we've remembered here tonight as we've taken bread and wine together. You see, like David, our Lord Jesus, he left his royal home to go live among his enemies. He humbled himself, not out of fear or fleeing from some, some, crazy, some crazy king, but the Lord Jesus, he went willingly out of obedience to his father. And he came into enemy territory, into this world full of people, of rebels like you and I before God. And he lived his life in obedience to the Father. And he trusted that in the right time, in the right way, God would vindicate him as he faced death on our behalf. And then won salvation for each one of us. These Psalms point to the Lord Jesus in such powerful ways. And I think as David was writing them, the Spirit was at work showing us how we ought to respond to these sort of trials. Let me finish with this other psalm that, that David wrote in this situation. Psalm 56 is another one. And the, the subtitle of that psalm says that he wrote this in response to when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. Psalm 56. Let me just read the first four verses. David says, Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. But I'm afraid I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? What an attitude David has here. He faced real fear. He admits that. Look at verse 3. He says, when I'm afraid. He, he was afraid. But then in the very next verse he says, in God I trust and I'm not afraid. How can that be? When we're afraid, how can we be not afraid? Well, between those two lines, it says this. David says, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. How can David be so confident that when people are trying to kill him, how can he not fear what people may do to him? It's because he praises God's word. He trusts in the God who speaks to him. He recognizes that this is a loving God. He's a God who's not distant, but he's near to each one of us. He's a God who has spoken through his word, and we can know this God ourselves. This is a God who has intervened. He's a God who makes promises, and we know he will keep them. They are promises to you and me. This is the same God who spoke to David, the same God who spoke this world into existence. He speaks promises over us here this evening. And David says, I can trust his word. 
I know he will do what he says he will do. And because of that, he has no fear. Whatever man may do to me, I have no fear because I trust the promises of God. Can you say that? Can you say that yourself, that you trust God's word, that you praise his word, his promises? We may not be running from our, for our lives from, from some mad king. We, not be, we may not have our lives, our very lives threatened and have to leave our home, our family, our wives, everything we loved. But we face trials of our own sorts each day. And they're real and they're hard. We fear them sometimes. Each day has enough trouble of its own, we're told. Whether it's our relationships, whether it's our money and our finances, whether it's our poor health, the upcoming exam, things we worry about, losing a rugby game. There's all sorts of things we worry about in this life. But we live in a world where we know God has spoken. A God who makes promises to each one of us, whose word we can trust in every situation. So let's say with David, I put my trust in God, whose word I praise. Can you say with that? Can you say that in your hearts tonight? As you go from here, I will trust his word. We're going to have a look around our tables in a moment at some of the promises of God. And I've listed about nine or ten of them there. And I'd like us to look them up and be encouraged by these promises that we can trust today. And I hope that one or two of them may speak really directly into your lives tonight, that you'd know God's promises for you, that we can trust them, whatever you're facing. So we're going to have a, the next five or ten minutes around our tables, just chatting about that. The promises, are the, the verses will be listed on the screen. Do look some of them up, and then share about what they mean to you and to one another around our tables. And then we'll close with a song after that.